Welcome to another episode of the Essential Craftsman Podcast. I'm Nate. I've got the Essential Craftsman with me. How are you doing? We're doing good, man. We got a heater in the shop. It feels good. We're happy. So we're going to talk about this video we put up recently about cutting these trees down because there's always things that aren't conveyed, but there were a few things in particular with this video that I just don't feel like were conveyed. And, and several of them are questions that I even have to this day. So I'm going to do the job. I'm going to play the role of the viewer and try to fill in some of the cracks. And the first thing um, to mention that I know didn't come through, but you, you were kind of nervous that morning. I was. Do you want to explain? I know you should always be nervous when you're cutting down a big tree, but was there more in particular about these ones or can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I had just, I had agreed to pay 400 bucks a piece for those things. Now that's, you know, I said in the video, it's a third more than the value of the firewood. It might be 50% more than the value of the firewood and it's a fair amount of money, right? Yeah. So there's five trees. I think we cut down five, got one as a bonus. Yeah. So um, like 2,500 bucks or yeah, some, something like that. Somewhere in there. Cause I, I had a separate deal with, um, Chris who owned the one that the fence was in. Right. Paid him a little more because he was going to bring his excavator over and help us. And I'm really glad he did. You know, that was really nice. Yeah. But I, I was a little nervous about that. I had never worked around Chris, and I knew that I would un be underneath the, the boom of that excavator. I didn't know if he was going to have to push that tree over. So I was just a little edgy about engaging with him. Mm -hmm. But I, w I was just nervous about getting those nice trees on the ground without barber chairing them. So we put a video out several years ago with similar trees, and we mentioned it. And they didn't barber chair maybe textbook, but there was a couple of them that definitely got messed up, right? Is yeah, that and, what you're kind of thinking back to? And I was up there before that day that you filmed, and textbook wrecked a couple of them. Oh. Before you got there, they, they just they blew up. Okay. Yeah. So you were worried that you're going to cut these trees and obliterate the nice lumber yeah. and like and have spend and, the money and, either and way have firewood at 50% over cost, you know. Got it. And so and then it was the other thing about um lots of guys around. I mean Aaron yeah. was there, the owner and Chris was there and the cameras were there and yeah. it was that is more than a little anxiety provoking because you don't know exactly what's going to happen when you're cutting timber all the time. And I couldn't keep track of exactly where everyone was standing and all mm -hmm. of that. And so, and I'm a bit of a worrier. So there's that. So it was a little nerve wracking. So a barber chair, we, this didn't, wasn't explained in this video, but there are times when a tree is cut down where that hinge, uh, kind of reaches up and, and, expands and and obliterates sometimes a lot of the of the best part of the tree is that how you that, describe that's exactly that? right because like we mentioned in the video the first log up from the stump is the value yeah you know the second log is some value and the top is no value but the barber chair happens right in the middle of the high value piece and mm. it's a split that's generated by the by the bending action of the tree across the hinge wood you know, in as you're falling it, there's hinge wood that you haven't cut off yet. And as a tree bends across that, sometimes it's easier for it just to split vertically. And the split can go up there 8 or 10 or 20 or 30 feet. And then you've got all kinds of uncontrolled stuff happening up over your head. Yeah. And you wreck the tree. Like think if you're snapping a branch and maybe it'll snap and you'll have two pieces. 
but it could also break. Yeah. And it just kind of like does a huge bend. Yeah. And half of it, <laughs> half of it splits up and half yes. of it just bends. And so on a tree, that half up in the air is still coming down. That's right. Yeah. But that's it. you have no control at that point, right? And then sometimes that half that's up in the air will pivot on the part that is not springing out. And now you got the tree essentially balancing just for a second five or six or eight or 10 or 20 feet up in the air. And it's a hard thing to get away from. In fact, I'm remembering now as we're talking about this, my brother Brett was almost killed by a little, when he was probably 11, my dad had him up helping him fall some timber. Now I'm not vouching for the wisdom of that, but a small incense cedar barber chaired and Brett was standing too close. Mm. And dad said, run. Well, a kid doesn't have sense enough to run. Brett just took about one step and arched his back and this, cedar tree that was pivoting up on the on the splinter slipped off the edge and just landed like 18 inches behind his back plop right on the ground just about got him Hmm. so that's maybe a long-winded and somewhat exaggerated risk analysis but i was just worried i mean i was old and stiff the biggest the biggest problem that i'm running into with cutting trees is inflexibility bending over working Hmm. down at the ground you know i just am am unable to get down to that level as fluidly and move away as quickly as I used to be. And so that's anxiety provoking. Yeah. And there's something about eyeballs also like, um, think about, or I'm thinking about people even doing something like loading their boat onto a trailer at a boat ramp Yeah, and backing it up or or backing backing it up. Yeah. Let's say you're picking up something from a lumber yard and the, the minimum wage, you know, 18 year old kid is like watching you back it up. Even that can, Get in your head. (laughs) (laughs) And so with cutting trees where it's uh, there's a safety issue, and then obviously the cameras, we wouldn't, if it was too crazy, we just wouldn't show it. But that doesn't change the fact that they're still kind of pointing and and drawing attention, I'm guessing, right? For sure. Um, So, you know, Murphy's Law, if anything can go wrong at will and at the worst possible moment. So I've made up a few other sort of additional laws for Murphy and one of them that I didn't make up but it's what we were talking about is the likelihood of anyone watching you at any particular time is directly proportional to the stupidity of your actions Mm. and there's lots of ways to be dumb cutting down trees and when there are people watching and a camera running it just kind of escalates the likelihood of being dumb yeah and so that that was one of the reasons I was nervous another thing that wasn't really made clear in the video is how you were having trouble with your saw and it just came out of the shop and I could even kind of tell just watching that you weren't loving the way it was kind of cutting mm-hmm. and you you kind of sharpened it and filed the rakers. Will you kind of describe what that is because we haven't actually done a great video about saw sharpening. Mm-hmm. We, we need to and we will, but maybe explain to, to people how something like that could add to the, you know, the stress or the lack of confidence in a a project like that. So I went up there. I knew the saw was sharp, but I hadn't focused my attention on the rakers. The rakers are a little blunt piece just in front of each tooth that keeps the tooth from digging so far into the wood that the saw won't pull it. If you didn't have the rakers and you slap that that chain into the wood, it would just go, and it would just lock up. Mm -hmm. I mean, Think of taking a skill saw and just jamming it into a board just as fast as you can push it. It doesn't have power enough to pull out all that wood. Mm -hmm. So the rakers are filed down, and they regulate how how far the tooth is pulling into the wood before the raker is holding the tooth 
from going any further into the wood. Mm. And I mentioned that Western Logger's Supply had helped me, and I don't, I don't remember the young man's name. He just gave me some really nice tips on the, the chain filing. He looked at the chain I brought in. He said, did you have that sharpened? No, I filed it. Oh, you did a good job. He was complimentary because I, I keep the hook very pronounced, and I kept the, the tips, the very points of the, that semi-chisel bit chain is the most important part. And then he mentioned to me, and I didn't realize he was telling me to file my rakers. He was talking about how to file the rakers mm. and using a gauge, which I hadn't done. And he was, in a very respectful way, telling me to pay attention and get those rakers down where they belonged. And I just didn't do that. I just went up and went to work. And so as a result, the saw was not cutting aggressively at all. It, w it wasn't really pulling out nice chips. It was pulling out smaller, very thin pieces. And that, that was just frustrating because the camera was running. Well, and uh, in some cases when you're maybe, when the tree's really starting to go and you want to really kind of mm -hmm. get in there, mm -hmm. if those are keeping you from really cutting out wood, that's that, that that's would be true. more than annoying. That That is true. Um, so anyway, we knocked him down a little bit. I should have taken him down some more. And I'm going to take that young man's advice and buy, and buy a gauge. There's a gauge that you can set on the rakers and file down to where the gauge the gauge will set the right clearance, which is between about 20 and 30 thousandths. That's somewhere around a millimeter or a little less. I know that because I looked at that metric tape that was sent to me, and I'm not too far off on that. And and then you can regulate how aggressive your saw cuts, and you can take the rakers down further with a shorter bar because you have fewer teeth in the wood. Oh, okay. So each tooth, there's only a certain amount of horse. Your saw only has a certain amount of horsepower. Yeah. And that horsepower is distributed among along all of the teeth that are working at the time. Right. And so on a smaller log, on softer wood, on a shorter bar, you, your rakers can be cut, filed back further so you can rip out more wood with each mm. tooth. So I was just, I wasn't really tuned up on that. So the idea is when, as you sharpen a chain over the years, those, those little bits are getting smaller. Mm -hmm. And so maybe every few times of sharpening, yep. you need to catch up with yep. the rakers and bring them That's down exactly also. Exactly right. Exactly right. I'm going to make this up because, see, I used to log, but I was never fully qualified. I was young and I was just doing it to make a living. But I've been around people that are fully qualified. And my dad was fairly fully qualified, but he was more of an on-the-ground guy than a cutter guy. But I think about every fourth time or fifth time you file your saw, you ought to check and brush the tops off your rakers. Just keep them down there. And the way to check it is you just check your sawdust. And if you're not pulling out some pieces that are one or two or three or even four inches long, if they're, if it's all just little short pieces, your rakers are not filed down enough. All right. Well, let's talk about the logs themselves. And this is, uh, is going to talk about, I guess the first part of this is bucking because mm -hmm. after the tree hits the ground, the next step is to cut it to length. Mm -hmm. And you're measuring that with a tape. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Because it seems like, it's super important. And, you know, like, for example, cutting a tree off at 20 feet versus 12, both are very useful lengths, mm -hmm. but you got to decide right then, I guess, which direction you're going or, or, or uh, I you did. to explain how, how bucking yeah. works and maybe how you did it here and then compare that to how a big logging operation would approach it. Yeah. So what I was doing up there has almost no relevance or significance or similarity to how it's done commercially around here with the softwood, with the Douglas fir and the cedar timber, where you are cutting to lengths that are determined by the mill you're selling to. Different mills making different products want different lengths. 
And like I say, I'm not an authority. Buck and Billy, Billy Ray, Buck and Billy Ray. Yeah, Buck and Billy Ray. Buck and Billy Ray is the guy to listen to if you want to see somebody talk about filing a saw or probably log lengths. Yeah. But when we were selling to veneer plants, we were selling logs that were bucked in multiples of, if I remember right, eight foot six, multiples of eight foot six, plus some trim. Because when they peel veneer, they... That was the multiples they wanted. When you're selling to a stud mill, it's a different multiple length, and they have preferred lengths. And and so the tree's on the ground, and you go out to bucket, and you're looking to see what log length you're going to take out of that log. Now, part of it, sawmills, well, I'm not ready to dive into scale, I guess, yet, but I will because a small logger, where when you're cutting them and bucking them, you're going to make more or less money based on the the amount of wood you sell. You tend to cut them as short as you can and comply with the mill's preferred log length. Because the shorter the log is, the more scale, the more overrun you get out of the volume that's laying there on the ground. The reason for that is logs are scaled by scaling bureaus around here. According to here, usually... The Scribner tables. There are several different um, sets of numbers describing wood volume in logs. The international rule, Scribner tables, and there's another much earlier one that I can't even remember the name of. But around here, usually it's the Scribner um, volume calculations that are used. So think of this. If you've got a, a Douglas fir tree that's, let's say it's 16 inches on the stump, and it is, let's say there's 64 usable feet before it gets down to like 8 inches. Although you can sell logs here down to 5 inch diameter. Um, the scaling cylinder is the diameter at the small end projected down the length of the log. So let's say that this 16 inch tree DBH, that's diameter breast high, I think, which is, you know, that's, that's a pretty good tree. Let's say it's 64 feet and 8 inches long. When it's 64 feet on the ground, you're only going to be paid for an 8-inch diameter log 64 feet long. Hmm. But if you cut that into 232s, you're going to get paid for an 8-inch log 32 feet long. And then let me make this up and say it's going to be a 12-inch a, um, log, maybe 13-inch log, 32 feet long. The volume of a 13-incher at 32 feet and an 8-incher at 32 feet is more than the volume of an 8-incher 64 feet long. So in other words, that, that waste or the excess around the large end of yep. the tree, you are not paid for it. It's the taper. And You're not paid for the, the taper. The mill's going to very often get a board or two out of it. They're going to get big overrun out of that. So there's you capture some overrun, which is scale above the volume according to the log scaling tables. By shortening your logs, you mm -hmm. capture some of the overrun. Yeah. And then the mills capture overrun by careful sawing techniques, mm -hmm. sawing out the taper using very efficient saw curfs. So they take almost nothing for sawdust now. Yeah. And let's not forget that you pay for a two by four and you go home with an inch and a half by three and a half. <laughs> yeah, that's, okay? just, that's just And theft. so the difference between the three and a half to four and inch and a half to two if they can saw that carefully enough that the, the saw and the planer just takes dust, they're paid for logs, for, for material that they don't have to sell. Mm. And so that contributes. Overrun, sawmills get overrun. Now, you don't have to believe this because I'm not sure it's true. But I think, and I remember, and my brother-in-law, John Blodgett, could 
um, speak to this, that overrun can exceed 100% in an efficient sawmill that's selling short logs, short, short boards, because they buy a long log, a 32 or a 24 is often a minimum preferred log length, and they bucket plus trim. That doesn't count the trim that's left on the logs, which is an additional six inches that they can use to cut it into its lengths. Okay. Mm. So when they bucket into the blocks that they saw their studs out of and then add up the number of studs, multiplied, figured it two by four, sold at three and a half by inch and a half with the overrun and the taper, they can make a lot of money on the overrun that mm. they buy from the logger. And loggers hate that. <laughs> well, I'm sure they pass it on, and it's that, that's why two by fours are as cheap as they are, is because they're it try, is. they're competing, and so it, but it all, is shake, how the, it it all is. shakes out. The loggers take the short end of the stick. Though. <laughs> the loggers certainly think so. Yeah. <laughs> so, how much uh, buffer, or you know, if you cut a log off at eight feet six inches, how exact does that have to be? Because I mean, even if you're if you don't make a perfect buck, you might lose a couple inches. It doesn't have to be exact, um, but you shoot for six inches. Six so, inches. Yeah, you, you shoot for six inches. And if when they're scaling it, there's not six inches in there, they'll cut a foot on the length. So you only get paid for mm. a, let's say you sell, sell, sell them a 24-foot log that's 24-6. If there's not six inches of trim, yeah. if it's 24-1 or 24-2, the scaler could at his or her direct uh, discretion figure it's only 23 feet long. So where, where does a scaler... Um, exist in a mill are they kind of when a log truck rolls in he can't do this while they're on the truck so they they mark the logs and pull them off and where does a scaler get this job done because these logs are all moved by machinery they're all huge and question how does that work so disclaimer i was not a log scaler i took a log scaling class when i was about 19 because i thought that would be a good job but i lost interest i just i just decided not to do that my brother-in-law, John Blodgett, started out as a log scaler for the Southern Oregon Log Scaling Bureau, mm. and my dad was a check scaler for Roseburg Lumber. So if I don't get to that, remind me of that. Mm -hmm. But to your question, the logs are unloaded by ginormous forklifts. They, they take the whole load of logs, they clamp the whole thing, they lift it up, and they drive out into the yard, and then they scatter them. They back up, dropping one at a time, and that load of logs is spread out, to where the scalers who are on site can get to both ends. They can walk up and down each log, measure the length, measure the diameters, mm. and now electronically they enter that into a little computer mm. um, tablet that they have. It used to be that it would be on a pad. Length, diameter, and grade. They're mm -hmm. not just calculating the, the volume, they're mm. calculating the grade. And the, So think of that. Those oak trees that I bought that we're going to saw up this fall, this summer, I picked those out of that stand because of how I perceived the grade of the lumber that's inside of it. Um, there are defects that particularly the softwood have that have to be identified before the tree is purchased because it absolutely dictates the value of the lumber that's extracted. Defects are pitch seams, uh, knot clusters, um, uh, splits, breaks, shake as it's called, excessive stump pull when, when the when the tree is falling off this is being pulled off the stump by gravity, those big splinters that can pull out of the center part of the tree. The scaler looks at the end and if on a big premium number three peeler or number two peeler expensive log or a special mill or something, we might talk about those grades. 
if the cutter didn't get it cut off quick enough and there, and it pulled splinters that are three feet long down out of that first cut, there's no board there. Mm. And so the mill doesn't feel like they have to pay for it. And so there are specific deductions that the scaler has to make for these different defects. And there's a lot of defects. Like a, like even like a bend of the tree. A has bend. A big bend. Excellent. You know, a pistol butted log, that is where it bends over, that bends out of the scaling cylinder. They don't get paid for what's outside of the scaling cylinder. Yeah. And so there are cuts, deductions they can make in length or in diameter or in grade. Hmm. And, and it has long been, well, it used to be a bone of contention before log scaling bureaus existed because the logger was at the mercy of the scaling that was done by the mill owner. And obviously there's a, a conflict of interest there, right? Yeah. Um, but now we always, all of the logs that dad and I sold were graded by the Southern Oregon Log Scaling Bureau. They are a third party. They are, and I will assert that they actually are um, impartial. They're very professional. I know, this, I know a lot of scalers, oh, a lot, three or four scalers that have worked for them. They're ethical guys, and now women. I mean, th there are plenty of women out there in the rain, in rain suits, with the tape measures and their tablet walking up and down those log lengths, mm -hmm. grading those logs. And whatever the Log Scaling Bureau says and carefully records is the volume and the grade of the lumber dictates how much money changes hands. Mm. Now, they don't handle the money but they provide the documentation of the value. Yeah, that's really cool. And they are incentivized to do a good job yes, because they when they do a good job, the the mill and the logger can all agree, like that's probably what it's worth. Yes. And, and that's just, that's really, a, I mean, priceless or just certainly valuable. It's a high value thing. Service. It, it, I mean, it's think of a real estate appraiser. They're log appraisers, kind yeah. of. They're measuring and appraising. Um, the, and, and it is serious money. There is a ton of money Hmm. that is um, represented by the value of that of that softwood lumber around here. Well, that's really neat. So let's talk about these logs in particular because you kind of eyeballed and predicted that the quality would be high. They looked straight. They looked like there was no knots. Can you talk about what you were looking for and why you thought these might, you, we don't know yet, but yield the lumber you're looking for. You you did a similar thing a couple of years ago and opened them up and it just wasn't what you're hoping. So is there just an element of uh, uncertainty no matter what that, that is to be accounted for? There is. Um, I looked those trees over pretty carefully and there was very little visible defect. That is, there was very little indication outside at the bark of limbs or rot or splits or scars there was not much could be seen now in that video if you look closely you can see that there were some um bumps you know not bumps there were a couple of knots that could be seen but not many and quite a bit of distance and quite a bit of diameter mm -hmm. so mostly what i was looking for was um smooth that is no knots and size because all I'm interested in is clear vertical grain because of the fleck grain characteristic. Excuse me. But does does that fleck always accompany vertical grain, or is it is that it's in and of itself sort of like a it uncertain it characteristic? It almost always does if it's sawed vertical grain, oh. quarter sawn, nicely quarter sawn. The problem with those other trees was okay. So let me back up. 
Eric Gerritsen, who I believe says that there's an element that increases the fleck with the weight of the tree. As the tree gets bigger, it tends to increase the medial ray distortion or whatever it is that causes that characteristic. So fleck for the listener is when you see wood that it looks, it's like a, it's like a depth light. How do you describe it? It's kind of iridescent. It's yeah. kind of three-dimensional. It's kind of like, you know, those those little things you buy at, at souvenir shops where you turn it one way and you see one <laughs> shape, you turn it one way, you see another. Yeah. It looks kind of like that. It's utterly random, kind of a tiger stripe. Beautiful. And, and there's different types of fleck. There's quilting and all sorts of different variations those, of the same type uh, of similar, thing, right? Similar. Fleck itself is just one aspect of the of the cells in those oak trees and some other species that project these rays, they're called, that come out radially from the heart of the tree. That is, they're going, these rays are going kind of straight out from the heart of the tree to the edge on a, the line that a radius would be drawn on. Mm -hmm. And when the wood is quarter sawn, those rays are kind of interrupted and uh -huh. cut through and they just make this so shape. by ray, you mean like those cells have some distinct characteristics yes. that are transporting some for some reason there's like a, a yes. type of cell that occupies yes. a little finger that sticks out. I think it's medullary rays or medial. I, I yeah. should know, but I don't. Interesting. But those other. But there's the thing where if the tree's not big enough, you don't get a wide enough board when you're quarter sawing it oh. to get a useful board in cabinetry or trim like mm -hmm. I need, and to give enough distance for the for the fleck to show up, and to give them enough volume of wood that that has a chance of having that characteristic. So those trees I saw last time, I would say 15% of the wood had fleck and 85% of it was just nice, clean, vertical grain without fleck. And I didn't use it. Do lumber yards, when they open up a unit of lumber that has fleck, do they immediately like set it aside and mark it up? Or does that happen at the mill or in a commercial aspect or let's say a retail aspect, how is that much more desirable lumber sort of separated at what point is it separated and uncovered like hey we you know struck gold here great question so the real answer is i don't know for sure but in the softwood industry out here it's irrelevant mm. fleck doesn't happen in douglas fir but clear vertical grain douglas fir is still a premium product oh. and so there are mills used to be more than there are now who just saw for cvg and when it's coming down the green chain there are lumber graders who will sort it and it goes into a different bin and is sold as CVG. Oh. Now, the big warehouser and stuff, they don't have time to be sorting that out. They're not sawing to that market. When you're sawing studs, nobody's pulling out the vertical grain studs. Uh, they just all go into the pile. Yeah. But in the hardwood world, from the, the, the sawmill owner probably doesn't sort it unless he's specifically sawing vertical grain. Then that's going out into its own stack. But the stuff that happens that way accidentally is just mill run. But... When it goes to a hardwood um, retailer after it's planed and dried and goes perhaps at the wholesale level, but s let, let's say it happens at the wholesale level, like Destero Lumber up in Portland, mm -hmm. those guys can sort out of stacks for the mm -hmm. premium stuff. It can be purchased as premium. Somewhere along the line, it can be sorted out. And then that happens all the way down to the lumberyard. When I go into Garrison's, when I'm, when I'm buying kiln-dried framing material, if I see a clear vertical grain two by six, I've been known to squirrel that away and put it in my shop because I'm going to need it someday. So mm -hmm. there are plenty of chances for that prime stuff to be called out. So you mentioned that grandpa did scaling or check scaling. Can you circle back and describe what that 
variation of this yeah. is? It was one of the really smart moves my dad made. He worked for Roseburg Lumber in the Dixonville veneer plant, and he had various jobs running equipment and pulling green chain, and he was a responsible, hardworking guy. You, you've mentioned green chain a couple times now. Will you just uh, the, the clarify green, that? The green chain is a conveyor that takes whatever your lumber product is, whether it's boards or veneer, in the green state when it com- when it's cut or peeled, the green chain is carrying this newly minted lumber product out and it's being pulled off, used to be entirely by hand. Often now it's still by hand. It's being pulled off and sorted into different stacks by people, typically young men, who are sorting it out at speed and um, sometimes after it's been graded, sometimes before it's been graded, and they're pulling the heavy, wet material off of a chain onto a situation where a forklift can handle it. So it's, it's the first step after the log hits the saw. That's right. It's a first step. Yeah. Okay. So he was, he was doing all sorts of things, including pulling chain occasionally and equipment. Yes. And he got a chance to bid on, that is, throw your name in the hat. It was a union, um, Roseburg Lumber is a union shop. He got a chance to bid on the check scaling job, which is a guy who is scaling the blocks after they've been cut into the usable lengths as they came into the mill as a way to sort of check not only what they were paying for out there in the yard, the scaling that had happened by the bureau scalers, but checking the volume of wood that was going into the mill compared to the volume of wood that was coming out. Ah. And so he would stand there and they were come in on conveyors and he would measure the blocks, record record the diameters, the length, the grade, the cut, the defect, and then it would go in to be processed. It was a good job. And so in his middle age, I don't know if he was 40 or what, he went to Umpqua Community College, took a log scaling course. He had been a logger, so he was familiar with all this, and he learned the details of scaling and worked as a check scaler until he um, bought a trucking company and left Roseburg Lumber. Not funny. I'm sure that was right around the time you thought you wanted to do scaling. Th- that's why. Isn't that's that why I, I had heard him talking about yeah, it, and, and he like, said, "You know, it's a pretty good job. Those bureau scalers make good money." I thought, "Why not?" That's what I should do that. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And then I realized, no, I my brain would probably short right out if yeah. I did that. Yeah, it's. It's probably pretty repetitive just very, looking at logs day very in, day out. Soon there's nothing to think about except the fact that you better not make many mistakes. And and it's But you have to pay attention enough that you, mm-hmm. it's not like you're just putting on some headphones or daydreaming nope. all day or nope. thinking about the weekend. No, nope. you're not listening to podcasts right. while you're scaling. Yeah, that that's rough. Well, I'm sure it's more automated now than it was then, and there's yeah. some amount of... Uh, well, it's probably it's probably even less interesting because you're just punching a button. <laughs> okay, now there's another thing. Sometimes, and occasionally around here, now that the log size is smaller, logs are sold by weight. Mm. Trucks drive over a scale on their way to the mill, get a weight, gross weight, go in, they're unloaded, they drive over the same scale coming out, get a tear weight, and the mills are buying by the ton See, also. See, that... that- that makes sense because you know the mill is using it's like it's like Indians using a buffalo. Yeah, they're using every part <laughs> of that, right. even if they that's mulch right. the sawdust and sell it to the landscapers. That's right. But, but that, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, it, it is. That only works now because so many logs are sold camp run. See that that harkens back to the uh, logging camps when the camp run means a a price for everything that comes from this job rather than a graded price. If you buy graded logs, then the scalers are determining whether it's a cull, a select cull, a number three mill, number two mill, um, number one mill, select mill, three peeler, two peeler, number one peeler. I think those are the grades. I may have got one or two of those wrong. You guys can correct me. Those are graded logs, and you make a different amount of money depending on the grade. Mm. But now that so much of it is just second or third or fourth growth, 
Douglas fir, yeah. essentially similar, overwhelmingly number two mills, um, almost no special mills. Well, they, what is number two mills? A mean? number two mill is it is based on diameter, and I can't tell you the specs, but I think it's less than twelve inch top, oh. or maybe it's less than a sixteen inch top. If it's relatively smooth, a certain number of knots, no big sap, no big sweep, mm. it's a number two mill. Um, number three mill is rougher. Three mills are kind of the tops where the diameter is smaller and there's more knots. Mm. And a special mill might be the first cut on a really smooth, something that there would be some clear lumber in yeah. that I think is over 20 inches in diameter. It's scaling cylinder. Yeah. Um, but mostly or often now it's just camp run and it's just volume that they're paying for or weight. Do logging operations, I, I, I'm sure they have, they understand all of these mills very precisely. And does it happen where they're like setting certain logs aside in order to let's carry those ones to yes. that log or to, I'm sorry, to that mill yes. because they will pay us otherwise? Is that kind of, their loggers are sorting that out? Great to, question. Um, some loggers, if you get a really nice stand of second growth fur, gun barrels as they're called, they go up forever and not much taper there's a market for selling poles. Think of telephone poles. Mm. So you can sort out the premium stuff because it pays much more money. Mm. Some, and sometimes you sort a different species. You've got an agreement with Keller Lumber to sell them the cedar, and you've got an agreement with Roseburg Lumber to sell them the pine, and you've got an agreement with you know, whoever, Douglas County Lumber to sell them the second growth fur. But it goes even further than that. There are giant sort yards here up and down the West Coast, mostly up in Washington, I think. We'd have John on here. You could yeah. ask John these things. But there are sort yards that are just covered with mountains of logs that are sorted by grade that come in, camp run, and then are sorted by grade. So a sawmill owner can say, hey, I need, I need, um, I need a million feet of special mill. What do you got? And then they can get trucks just coming from that sort yard, bringing mm. down that specific log. Oh, that's cool. I don't know how often that happens. I don't know what connection you need, connections you need to do that. But I know that sort yards exist and they are they've got lots of yeah work. it's a middleman who is assisting in this area of, yeah. of uh helping everybody maximize their yeah their, their product yeah their stuff, efficiency huh? oh yeah. that's really cool one other thing on this um there's a business here keller lumber it's been in one family for a long time my dad sold logs to them when i was 15 setting chokers for him um and they have as far as i know correct me boys if i'm wrong they still don't have an agreement with the Southern Oregon Log Scaling Bureau. Really? They got their own scaler. He's out there scaling the logs, and Keller always paid fair scale mm. to us. They have a reputation for, you argue with us if you want, but here's what it is. Part of that is helped by the fact that they buy exclusively red cedar, mm. and so grade is not as critical to that for what they make. Interesting. But that is neat, yeah. That is, and they... It should be said they do have incentive to do a good job on it still because yeah. if word got out that like Keller will rip you off, they're not getting logs they're anymore. They're not going to get logs. <laughs> now I, I may have misspoke. They may buy incense cedar also. I don't know, mm. but they're a cedar mill and they're they're a good old outfit. Where's that mill at? It's out by Young's Garden. Out. Oh, oh uh, yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it is neat. Great. Well, is there anything else from that video that you didn't feel like uh, got? represented or brought out um overall it went smooth the trees all hit the ground we don't know what's in them oh maybe mention the firewood there's still a ton of wood on the ground and let's mention the, the milling process okay yeah go ahead um i'm gonna bring in the same um same mill backwoods milling i've used that fellow up harvey is his name i've used him twice before on the same same sort of a mission 
He's got a nice little wood miser with a live deck. We're going to work hard and help him. We're, he's going to know from the moment he pulls up that we're in no hurry because the key to getting the scale out of these things is going to be to keep track of the orientation of the logs and then of the cants. He'll break them into cants, yeah. which is big, heavy, essentially beams, yeah. and then keep track of the orientation of the growth rings and turn those cants as often as we need to. It's going to take, it's going to take two full days, maybe three, to get the scale out of those things. Um, that wood miser is so much friendlier and more accurate than the old circular mill that I built as a kid. Yeah. It's a completely different animal. I'm going to get Cy up there with his cat, moving some of the logs around, and we'll pull this, the firewood portions off to another spot, and we'll go back several times and buck firewood out of that, haul a few trailer loads home. You're going to need some here. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to it, but it's going to be a slow motion, very carefully considered process. That was one of the reasons that I didn't get the scale out of the other logs. I had too many guys there on milling day. There was pressure, uh, too much conversation, not enough chance to really carefully monitor what I was telling Harvey. He was doing exactly what I told him, right? And and he was giving me his input, but it was all a little rushed, mm-hmm. and we're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And then we'll have to figure out how to get it to the to the planer and the dryer and then where to store it. Yeah, that's great. All right, well, uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning into this. We It probably would make sense to get some uh some lumber guy maybe john but someone who's paying attention to how these things happen now because yeah like all other big operations i bet technology has oh really uh yeah improved and yeah. and changed the way these things are done to some extent i don't know i guess we'll find out but. i will find out I, I mean some of you have probably been laughing at some of what i've said because it was um 20 years ago that i stepped away from logging for my paycheck after I moved back up here from Las Vegas and bought in with dad, lots of changes since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm only sort of peripherally now a logger. I'm a, I'm a builder guy and a blacksmith, but, but logging is a compelling and, um, worthwhile and it's a vitally important thing. I mean, logging has taken a terrible rap the last few years with the, the momentum of the environmental uh, movement, but I'll tell you what, bathrooms without toilet paper and printers without computer paper and and um, houses without without studs i mean we could i could justify that for a long time but logging is one of the most important things that happens for the comfort and well-being and health frankly of of our families and so it needs to be more carefully thought about and appreciated yeah you know another interesting conversation on that note would be to talk to someone from like Weyerhaeuser where lumber is really farmed is a way to think about it where they plant and they harvest and they have a I don't know if it's like a 100 year yes like viewpoint of the whole thing but certainly there were times when the environment was harmed in a maybe irreparable way and I don't know for sure but wasn't the Scandinavia scalped or, or Europe in general wasn't it just kind of scalped for lumber Absolutely. and it's kind of never well, recovered but, or but the fact is there is a lumbering industry in Scandinavia yeah. and it is farmed there and has been for a long time now the yeah. trees never grew back on the British Isles right I mean those places were scalped for the charcoal to yeah. do the blacksmithing <laughs> well the point is that there's something to the environmental conversation but there is. It, but it has just like farming where we're growing more food now than ever yeah. on the face of in the time of humanity but same with trees we're there's probably more trees growing and thriving now that these uh big commercial outfits have figured out the farming aspects the truth and how to grow and how to plant and uh, we ought to talk to one of these guys we'll bring people in here because there is um 
there's data. There yeah. is bulletproof data that shows that there are more trees growing now than there ever have been, that Oregon has more trees in it now than when the pioneers pulled into the Willamette Valley. Mm. Um, there are historical records of the hillsides that were bare and the hillsides that weren't bare. And um, now there are not more big trees. And the thing that contaminates this really, I think, practical view of trees as a crop is the romance associated with the deep, dark, untrammeled woods, yeah. which we need. I mean, I, I, I'm a woods guy too, or I used to be, but yeah, it's, an emotion, some... it's an emotionally charged, politically corrupted conversation that nobody seems to be able to have in a balanced way. Yeah, but man, that aspect, a big old forest, oh. mossy and shady, and the sun never hits the ground oh. is, oh man, it's amazing. And, and, a, and a freshly logged landing is, <sighs> looks like a, another planet kind of, it's yeah. just, it's devastating. So, it's de- it's emotional. That's the thing. It is so such an emotional, emotional. for whether you have skin in the game or not. You know, yeah. everybody can just like feel that like you know, the imagery of these things. So it's emotional so is the word. It, it is emotional, and so I I am somebody who can speak to that because I have walked into beautiful little glades and valleys and with sword ferns up above my waist. Yeah, and my old forty four, and I have had to sort of offer a prayer of gratitude and repentance for what I was about to do to a beautiful little spot on the planet. Yeah. And I did it and it was exciting and the wood went out and I've gone back to those little glades and valleys now. And you know what? The second growth is up about half as high as this garage and it's dark and it's cool and the spring is still running and mother nature is growing her good crop. Yeah. And it's, Everybody can see the the change in that glade and these forests. That's very obvious, but it's hard to see what our world would be like if lumber cost ten times what it does right now. <laughs> you know, if 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 yeah. just the price of wood products was ten x, yeah, it's hard to see what that would right. make our lives like. Maybe we live in concrete houses. Who who knows? Who knows? Uh, but it's easy to see the the freshly logged comparison. It's yeah. hard to see what our life would be like without these wood products. It's really great that these this technology is now allowing farming of it and yeah. and it's it's better than it used to be i, I think everybody it is could agree way better than that. it used to be yeah yeah all right well that's a that's a wrap everybody thanks for tuning in this is our second channel if you are fre- you're newly finding it and these podcasts are posted in all of the usual podcast locations and they are shared on youtube on ec2 thanks for tuning in we'll catch you next time thanks guys Well, I'll tell you what, as I've been listening back to this podcast, um, kind of reviewing it while Nate was getting ready to edit it, a couple things became really clear to me. And the first of those is that when you're sitting in front of a camera, sometimes you say things that you either would not say in a normal conversation or you would have time to back up and straighten out in a normal conversation with a group of friends. But the camera sort of washes that away for me sometimes, and I'm left with some inaccuracies hanging out there for the world to hear. The other thing is, it's been just about 20 years since Dad and I shipped our last load of logs. And during the intervening 20 years, you know, I've done lots of logging activities and I've cut down trees and I've yarded things and I've been around it. I mean, I live in Douglas County after all, and I own chainsaws and I like to do that. And my friends have trees alongside their houses and all of those sort of perhaps unwise reasons to get out a saw and cut something down. 
But the details about the logging process and the commercial aspects had gone kind of cold on me. And the first one of those is that I want to speak to is I told you something that was just plain wrong about the trim that is added to the log lengths. You don't add six inches. You're supposed to add 10 inches. And if it's less than six that is added, it's a defect. And the scaler will cut you a foot on the gross log length. So you shoot for 10 and accept up to six in the length that is attached to the log to be used up in cutting the log into its constituent pieces. The other place that I was unclear or perhaps just plain wrong is that, yes, the different mills have different preferred log lengths, but if you're shipping to a veneer plant, it's completely different than to a sawmill or a stud mill. And that is peeler blocks are a little over eight feet long. And that's so that eight foot veneer can be clipped out of the veneer that comes off of the, off of the block without any difficulty about you know, little splits or checks or chips or the indentation that the lathe, the chuck on the lathe might make or any of those things. So peeler blocks need to be longer. So when we were selling to Nordic Veneer, um, which was the, the right mill for us to sell to most of the time, the blocks, the logs were actually in um, eight foot six multiples. So we were selling, you know, a lot of 1710s. 17s we would ship and the longer logs would be graduated and upward in the same dimension but that's different than when we were selling to roseburg lumber or douglas county forest products or the places that just make boards out of the logs to those places it was in eight foot multiples and they had specific lengths that they really didn't want them shorter than those guys don't like short logs for the reasons that i talked about and everything was in eight foot multiples plus 10 inches of trim I, you know, as I think about this also, part of the reason that I'm not quite up to speed on this is because dad handled all of those agreements. He had been a scaler. He was an older guy, you know, commanded a little more respect. I was mostly just horsepower. And so dad was instrumental and key in all of these aspects of the our business. And, and so I guess that's one of the reasons that I'm not quite conversant. Just a couple other things, mistakes or oversights. The defects that I talked about were primarily defects around the way the tree grew, right? Sweep and, and uh, pitch and size and knot clusters and excessive taper and all of those things. The tree just grows that way and you sell what you've got. But there is another very prominent defect around here that's called conch or speck, white speck. And it's a fungus that attacks Douglas fir. Now, it doesn't happen too often in young trees. I mean, young, vibrant, growing trees are not as susceptible to conch. It's got to be an older tree. And you can spot it before you stick your saw into the tree. You look up, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 feet, however high you can sort of scan the trunk of the tree. And you look for these clamshell-shaped growths of fungus kind of hanging off the side of the tree. They're a brownish or a dark gray and kind of a cream color. And when you see that, you know that the fungus has attacked the tree and the heartwood is rotting. And the first step in that rot is a uniform distribution of little white specks, white speck. And if that is the point of the degradation of the tree, you can still sell it as a select cull, or at least you used to be able to. 
because sometimes it could be peeled and used as center core and cross core and different applications where people couldn't see it. But if it's any further advanced than that, it's just a cull and there's no value and the chip market doesn't support much of that. And so conk is a real problem on big wood. I think I misspoke a little bit. A 16-inch diameter stump or DBH is not going to make two 32-foot logs, um, at least in my memory as I think about it. It doesn't seem likely now. And then the last place I stuck my foot in my mouth was about log grades. I don't think there was – there's number three mills, number two mills, and select mills in the small log market, but there's no little number one mills. I don't know why I said that. There's number one peelers. It's the best possible log you can find or cut or sell. Very expensive. Number two peelers, number three peelers, and then it drops down to select mill. So that's probably not the only uh, false doctrine that I peddled in this podcast. But it's fun to talk about logging because, man, when I moved back up here from Las Vegas after grinding eight years there in construction and you know, six or seven or eight years previous to that. But especially the Las Vegas grind, it felt good to get away from being responsible to perfectly interpret plans and perfectly meet timelines and perfectly adhere to budgets and perfectly pass inspections and not break anything and don't kill anybody. And it felt great to shift gears to where I could walk into a stand of timber with a saw and the more wood I you know, the, the more the more devastation that I caused, and that's hyperbole, but the more timber I got on the ground, the faster I could yard that stuff down to the landing and get it bucked to length and we could get it on the truck and to the mill, the more money we made. And it was good money. And it was good work. And I loved working with my dad. It was like I was a kid again. I logged with him when I was 15 and 16 and 17. And it's I realize now that it is a big part of who I am. I logged for a couple other companies after high school, summers, high lead logging, completely different animal. But there's something about spending some time unleashing those forces and then harnessing the forces of the equipment and staying out of the way and anticipating how the leverage is going to work and being responsible for your own safety in life-threatening situations and the camaraderie that develops with people who are doing the same thing. There's something about it. I wish every young man could get a taste of that. I think it would make a big difference in how many young men really know anything about what it was to be a man in all of the thousands of years of human history previous. It's fun to talk about it. It may be a little bit difficult to listen to i don't know but nate and i do appreciate you tuning into this second channel and uh we appreciate you watching our youtube videos and finding us on podcasts or wherever it is we appreciate it very much so thanks for listening and keep up the good work <laughs>